Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you very much indeed for tuning in wherever you are, whatever you're doing. We, as ever, have got a lot to cram in. Before I start, just a reminder, we're in March now and the next live show of Rock and Roll Politics is streaming live from the King's Place website on March the 17th. I'll put the link into the blurb about the podcast, but of course you can go onto the King's Place website, book the tickets, and then put the date in the diary. And suddenly your March diary will look packed with exciting things, even though the lockdown is still in place. What excitement. A live show, streaming live on Wednesday, March the 17th. In the meantime, today, I'm going to be reflecting on the relationship between Prime Ministers and Chancellors, leaders of the opposition and shadow Chancellors, in the week of the budget. It is the most fundamental relationship of all in British politics. Pivotal. And then uh, we're going to take a look at some of your brilliant questions that you've put in and the email link will be again on the blurb wherever you get the podcast you can get it in all kinds of places spotify itunes and so on Uh, so do keep the points and questions coming because we learn so much from each other you know it's so great anyway prime ministers and chancellors when you look back at formidable governments long-lasting governments or indeed successful oppositions, a much rarer phenomenon in British politics. The relationship between Prime Minister and Chancellor defined the course. When I look back at the failure, broadly, of the Ted Heath government, by the way, I'm going back a bit to contextualise, I will look at Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak. The failure of the Heath government Uh, I think the cast was set very early on when Ian MacLeod, his chancellor, Heath's chosen chancellor, died suddenly uh, soon after the 1970 general election. MacLeod countered Heath rather well. He had been a journalist partly. He understood the media. Heath had no feel for the media whatsoever and was anyway a sort of cold, awkward figure. Uh, MacLeod kind of knew how to present and project. Heath rated him highly and would, I think, have given MacLeod space to develop economic policy in the face of the huge challenges that administration faced. Uh, external challenges, the quadrupling of the oil price, the industrial turmoil and so on. Uh, But instead, uh, he had to appoint someone he didn't really know uh, very well, Anthony Barber, who had given no thought to an economic strategy or economic policy making in terms of the range of issues that you have to contemplate, the political dimension, the obvious economic dimensions. And so Heath basically took it all on himself. He didn't have much confidence in Barber. Uh, And Heath was a sort of control freak and a micromanager. And it all went famously wrong. And if MacLeod had stayed, I've got a feeling things would have been very different. Indeed, MacLeod might have become a leader of the Tory party. He shared Heath's political instincts. They were both one nation Tory figures. And there would have been a more 
subtle dance, I suspect, between the two of them than there was between Heath and Barber. And it partly explains the failure of that administration. Well, it didn't last very long, which is definitely one criteria for success or failure. He was gone within three and a half years, roughly. Uh, called that election in February 74, posed the question, who governs? And the answer came back, not you. And then to counter that, look at the ones which have been a success on any, cri well, most criteria, not all, but some criteria. Uh, look at the fundamental importance of the Thatcher-Howe relationship. First of all, in opposition. Howe was a lot less showy than her. He was sort of dogged and quiet and calm. Uh, but in opposition, their relationship was absolutely crucial. Howe did a lot of the detailed work. Indeed, he had prepared his first budget uh, before he became Chancellor in the build-up to the 79 election. They were both, uh, at that point, close to being pure monetarists. But she, Thatcher, spoke about it in broad-brush terms, her loathing of uh, the state and a big state and the idea that you can control the money supply to make Britain a more efficient economy and so on. She would argue in broad brush. She used to go off to the United States to debate on American television programs. She loved debating and performing. And uh, she was fascinated by theory, but did not get as immersed in the detail as someone like Howe, who was hardworking and dogged and shared her beliefs. It was an ideal team in opposition. She was the great instinctive populist who could frame slogans to make monetarism accessible. My father, when he owned his shop in Grantham, never spent more than he earned, and a country cannot spend more than it earns. It's kind of economic illiteracy, but very accessible. Whereas Howe prepared that budget in 79, which began a very radical leap for the United Kingdom. Uh, incidentally, both of them, at a point where she was screaming that the lady's not for turning, you may turn if you want to, and all that kind of stuff, they were beginning to turn because the purest monetarist approach was causing uh, such economic chaos uh, that they actually did, to some extent, dilute the purists' version. Um, but it was a relationship that worked in government too. I mean, she found him at the beginning irritating and famously by the end loathed him, but he then brought her down. It was an extraordinary uh, coupling, Thatcher and Howe, uh, from the beginning to the very end. He, by the way, I mean, I kind of fiercely opposed the... Uh, policies and the consequences which incidentally are given far too easier a ride these days oh you know she kind of transformed Britain for the better many of the consequences uh, were catastrophic and much of the North Sea oil money was have was spent having to sort of subsidize those consequences in terms of welfare bills and all the rest of it whereas in places like Norway the money was spent much more constructively uh, but anyway, he was a very nice guy. I, I got to know him a bit in the later years. He was lovely and very engaged and curious and uh, interested in a whole range of uh, issues and 
politics and what was happening in the Labour Party. And, uh, and so, but they were so different in terms of personality. And by the end, she treated him with such disdain. And he, his ego was developed enough to recognise his centrality. And he found it, uh, annoying is too polite a word, although he never showed annoyance, that she claimed all the glory for the revolution uh, without acknowledging his central role. But it was a relationship that worked and won elections and did uh, transform Britain in a way that they wanted. They were game changers uh, in a way that few are. Then if you look at uh, the much-chronicled Blair-Brown relationship, uh, in opposition, it you have to look at both of them to explain the landslide victory in 1997. Brown, a shadow chancellor, uh, clearly he didn't stand in the 1994 leadership contest, and we all know the tensions that followed from that. Uh, and Blair was uh, had had many qualities that Brown didn't have, but uh, in '92, when Brown became shadow chancellor. Labour had lost four elections and weren't trusted above all with the economy and they weren't trusted in relation to tax and spend. It's why they lost election after election and his job was to become trusted with a hostile media and in a way that still gave some space for Labour to tax and spend. And it was a massive challenge, uh, which he ultimately met. It took quite a lot of time before, in government, they had the space to invest in the NHS and put up a, a tax in the 2002 budget directly aimed at investment in the NHS. But they got there, and they won elections uh, as a duo for all the tensions and differences. And there were differences beyond the soap opera. There were ideological differences between the two of them. But for all the tensions, it worked as a relationship and was at the key. And when it ceased to work altogether, there was, as with Thatcher and Howe, a kind of Shakespearean implosion. And then Cameron and Osborne. In opposition, central. The closeness of their relationship was such that Cameron couldn't have done it on his own and Osborne couldn't have done it on his own. It, as in almost winning in 2010, the, the flaws in that duo were evident then. They could have won an overall majority without the flaws, but they were a kind of shallow echo of uh, New Labour, or they tried to be, from, from the Tory perspective rather than the Labour perspective. Um, but the closeness of the relationship was the essence of the Tory recovery, such as it was in the 2010 election, and was at the heart of the government that followed, and then their modest 2015 election victory, a small overall majority. Uh, the two of them were absolutely central all the way through. And their relationship was, in some ways, too close. Cameron didn't scrutinise what the Treasury was doing, and the Treasury didn't scrutinise what Number 10 was doing. In that sense, the opposite of Blair Brown, where the scrutiny was relentless, almost minute by minute. Without that closeness, there would have been no Tory recovery on the scale that did take place. And it was actually quite a impressive electoral recovery. 
three election defeats, heavy defeats they had faced, um, and a kind of bewilderment still about how to deal with the new Labour phenomenon. Uh, but the two of them, in all kinds of ways, short-term things like Osborne blocking off Brown's determination or instinctive determination to call an early election in 2007 by announcing things like, um, was it the abolition of the inheritance tax? I think he announced Osborne in the 2007 election. Suddenly the Tories became popular and, you know, Brown panicked and didn't call that election and never recovered from their very mischievous and also ideological Thatcherite response to the 2008 financial crash. It was turbocharged Thatcherism, which is economically where their instincts lay. But in terms of projection, it was seen as technocratic and they managed to form most of the media that they were modernizers. They couldn't have done it separately. It was a partnership. Which brings me to Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak. This is a very different partnership to the ones, any of the ones I've cited, the successful ones to the uh, the loss of a successful one when McLeod died, in that it was or has been a relationship thrust upon them. It hasn't evolved over time as those long-term successful relationships have done. As we all know, Dominic Cummings wanted Sajib Javid out and didn't like his advisors and all the rest of it. And as a result, Sajib Javid was sacked, in effect. And then Rishi Sunak emerged uh, from nowhere almost to become Chancellor. And so Johnson, who doesn't really know colleagues well anyway, any of his colleagues, he's, he's, he's not someone who does that. He doesn't have form close relationships with uh, colleagues um, but he didn't know Sunak well and and Sunak has found himself in the treasury at a time of uh, extraordinary historic economic turmoil um, and hadn't expected to have been there so quickly so it's a relationship that they have to form with each other as they go along in the two top posts no relationship formed in opposition as they planned a way of winning and then developing that strategy in power. It's with them now in the midst of this hugely mountainous economic challenge. And the relationship, to some extent, has been portrayed as ever in the media uh, with as two kind of stereotypes. Johnson wanting the good news, uh, end of end of austerity. Don't speak to me about. It. Don't use the word austerity. You know, and he call me Rooseveltian. Uh, spend and investment and uh, red wall seats. And Sunak, as a kind of uh, turbocharged Thatcherite of the George Osborne mould, uh, aching to respond to the current economic crisis as Osborne did after the financial crisis in two thousand and eight. Famously and, and uniquely, Osborne and Cameron, in response to 2008, argued for real terms spending cuts immediately. They were the only mainstream party that did so. Remember, the Republicans in power with George Bush in America uh, put forward real terms spending increases to stimulate the economy. Those two weren't. But anyway, that's kind of where Sunak lies. And I'm sure those stereotypes are partly right, but only uh, partly right because uh, Johnson will be attracted to the idea 
uh, electorally of appearing to be the party of economic competence, in inverted commas, and know that the media buys into the idea that the Tories will over time balance the books and stabilise the economy, whereas Labour will overspend and overtax and wreck the economy. And so he will be bought into that and Sunak's argument, which I'm sure was deployed, that now is the time to put up taxes because I can then cut them at the election or near the election and go into the election as a tax-cutting government. Let's get the tough stuff done now. Uh, there's a bit of Johnson that will buy into that, but equally, Johnson does want to be uh, Rooseveltian, Rooseveltian. When he made his Rooseveltian speech, saying he was like, you know, the New Deal, of, he had re-announced kind of spending plans that had already been announced, and on a scale that was very un-Rooseveltian in terms of its ambition. But there is a bit of Johnson who wants to be like that. Equally, Sunak, though no doubt on that sort of Thatcher-Osborne wing of the Tory party economically, um, recognises, A, he's still relatively new to all of this and wholly dependent at the moment, in spite of his astronomic personally personal ratings, very high personal ratings, which gives him a power, as does the fact that Johnson can't sack a second cabinet minister. But he is there on the patronage of Johnson via Cummings at the time, who manoeuvred the departure of Javid and putting him in there. And that gives him a certain kind of humility as well in terms of his position that might change if he is deemed a success over two or three years and Johnson is seen as this uh, unreliable uh, kind of chaotic figure Sunak's authority to prevail in every argument will develop um, but that is not quite where the dynamic is yet. So I think they will kind of muddle through for the time being. Sunak will have the space to outline his kind of timetable for a return, as he would put it, to sort of economic stability and balancing the books and all the stuff that um, we are so used to hearing since 2008. And Johnson will still command the space to say, yeah, we're... No authority. Watch us build, build, build up better, um, and they will busk it. So, for example, the budget will, or if you've heard listening to this after the budget, will have combined uh, that combination of yeah, we're going to help you through this pandemic. Here's more help for X, Y, and Z, furlough extensions, all the rest of it, with Sunak's route map towards uh, stabilizing the financial situation and the deficit and so on so you know you can have uh two uh messages which means that the two new this new partnership can evolve that doesn't mean that there aren't fundamental tensions which a clever leader of the opposition could exploit within this cabinet it's a cabinet of absolute turbocharge thatcherites or some of them are some of them wrote that famous uh, or quite famous book not that famous actually hardly anyone knows it i think it was called britannia unchained about the joys of a small state and l much less regulation and so on 
loads of them in this cabinet, which is uh, driven by the phrase levelling up, which implies a hyperactive state. So, of course, there are tensions. Uh, and that will depend partly on uh, certainly whether they are ridiculed and exposed and challenged by the relationship between Keir Starmer and Annalisa Dodds, the current um, shadow chancellor. And that too is a relationship unlike others. So for example, another one that uh, didn't work well in opposition was Ed Miliband and Ed Balls, but that was for a very different reason. They kind of knew each other too well having worked for so long together in the Treasury, they fought that leadership contest and uh, viewed each other with great uh, wariness. And it was a very, very tense relationship. And in the end, it, it, it didn't work. It's got to be creative and clever and full of guile and constructiveness in opposition and effective messaging. And the, the dance needs to be compelling between a leader of the opposition and a shadow chancellor. With Keir Starmer, it's not like that. I mean, he is so new to the House of Commons, he is not really close to many MPs. And uh, Annalise Dodds was uh, involved in uh, the shadow team working with uh, John McDonnell uh, in the last parliament. He was involved in Brexit and so on. Um, so he obviously respects her, or else he wouldn't give her the key post in the uh, shadow uh, cabinet. And there was some competition for that post. Rachel Reeves would have yearned for it, and uh, Yvette Cooper would have gone for it rather than chairing the Home Affairs Committee if she had been offered shadow chancellorship. I think she was upset not to have been. Uh, so he obviously rates her highly, and she has signed up to his project. The two of them are uh, interconnected. But this relationship, rather like the Johnson-Sunak one, will have to evolve on the centre of the political stage. It's not like Cameron Osborne, two friends, uh, when they were backbench MPs, the same with Blair and Brown. Uh, this will be a relationship that develops together. And at the moment, uh, although actually Annalisa Dodds has made a series of calls which have proved to be wholly correct in relation to the pandemic, and has made a rather impressive, substantial speech on the fundamentals of Labour's economic policy. She did it at the May lecture, which is, was to a bunch of economists and financial specialists. Um, and it was quite impressive. Uh, but neither of them have worked out ways of conveying what they're about to the wider electorate. And you can see this with the fuss they've got into about opposing tax rises now including the national, uh, not the national insurance, the uh, corporation tax rise. And this, in a way, is a failure of communication. Uh, they are uh, proving to be, I think, this duo, poor communicators so far, uh, in explaining what they're about to the wider electorate via a media which is bound to be critical and sceptical. Um, it's, it's too early to pass judgment on either of these relationships, Johnson and Sunak, or Starmer and uh, Dodds, but the time will come quite soon, uh, once we're out of this pandemic, if we get out of this pandemic. You know, those variants lurking raise many 
questions that can't yet be fully answered. Um, that will be the testing time for both duos. But it is the relationship which matters, not shadow foreign secretary, not shadow trade ministry, leader of the opposition and shadow chancellor, and in the government, prime minister and chancellor. And if they can't work together, the government or the opposition party will not succeed. It's as basic as that. So there we are. Yeah, worth watching that relationship, especially this week. It's Starmer who responds to the budget speech, for those of you listening to the podcast in advance. So it's a big, that's a big moment for him. It's obviously a key test for Sunak, because Tory MPs, you know, it's the usual thing. Can you get any tax rises past a, a Tory parliamentary party in the, the, the sort of mood of instinctive rebelliousness, which partly shapes that party? Right, let's have a look at some of your questions. Enough about those relationships. Oh, by the way, for those of you who've got loads, I know, uh, fascinated by the uh, salmon sturgeon drama. Talk about relationships and pairings. There's a, there's a couple of questions about it coming up. But obviously, I'm going to look at that in much more detail um, in, in, in weeks to come, that this is not just a kind of one-day wonder story. Okay, some of your questions. There's one from Anthony Longdon. And now, in a way, I'm just going to read this out. This is a brilliant example of people bringing stuff to the podcast that I haven't been following uh, very closely. Uh, so uh, Anthony writes, uh, or asks, begins with a question, have you been watching the cladding scandal unfolding? Now, I'm afraid, I have to be honest, I haven't been watching it that closely. Some of you might well have been. Um, he says it's rapidly dividing the Tories and wrecking the old property-owning aspirations the party has fostered for so long. He says Stephen uh, McParkland, the rarest of beasts, a Scouse Conservative MP, has done a marvellous job sticking up for leaseholders who will be saddled with eye-watering costs of... Um, uh, uh, repairs, fire safety repairs and modernisation of these buildings. Uh, up to £100,000 per flat, Anthony writes. Um, uh, he points out the private eye, private eye has been doing a lot of that this, I did know that, has been reporting the smell of corruption in the air. The building industry, of course, is one uh, which contains many Tory party donors. So that kind of side of it merges into it. Uh, you have a housing select committee chaired by Clive Betts, the Labour MP, who has roundly condemned the government for dumping on innocent leaseholders. And yet the Tory MP Peter Bottomley has spoken up against it, as have many others across all parties. Um, and he points out this cuts across class and actually affects a great many wealthy Tory voters too. Um, so anyway, uh, he adds at the end, I'm reading this out, Anthony, because uh, you don't really pose a question. I'm pleased you don't, because you're more of an expert on this than me. Uh, he says it's all really extraordinary, and we should all take a quick look at the Twitter thread, End Our Cladding Scandal, for some more on this. It's genuinely astonishing and getting worse. Uh, I'll read that again. The hashtag on Twitter, which I'm going to turn to to, to to keep up to date, end our cladding scandal. So once we've all finished with the podcast, we should take a look at that. Thank you. Uh, that's very interesting. I've, of course, been aware of the multi-layered 
debate about cladding, which, as you say, spans Tory party donorship uh, to how you fund the costs of renovation and modernising and making safe these places. But you've provided a great deal of information. Thank you very much. Um, okay, let's move on to Joseph Thomas. This is a short question. Compared with Anthony's very detailed, I only summarised his email. Uh, uh, Joe says, one question, is Labour fit for purpose? Thank you. Uh, well, uh, you know, th there's a whole podcast to be done about the Labour Party. I reflected at the last live show on Keir Starmer, and I think quite a lot of you uh, logged in or whatever the phrase is to join me for that live event. The Labour Party as a whole uh, clearly isn't at the moment fit for purpose because that parliamentary party was formed to form governments, to go into parliament and form governments. It's lost four successive elections against what I think even conservative historians in years to come will conclude have been four of the most bizarre and weak Tory administrations uh, led by three figures, uh, David Cameron, Theresa May and Boris Johnson, who lack many of the qualifications for leadership and yet Labour have lost four times. So on that basis alone it's not fit for purpose. And the way it's approaching the challenge of the coming years suggests again levels of dysfunctionality. Um, so that's a crude answer because that's not enough. Uh, Labour has to rise, and I think Tories would agree with this who listen to the podcast too, uh, to at least present an alternative by 2024 that has a chance of succeeding. Because a fifth relatively easy Conservative win in a row will, I think, create questions about the state of democracy and so on in uh, the, the whole of the UK and raise further questions about Scotland, of which, of course, there are many raging at the moment. Uh, Heather Howell says, Hi Steve, love listening to your show and I'll be interested to hear your views on how the rollout of the vaccination in Europe uh, is developing following rows about AstraZeneca, the negative press on the efficacy of the vaccine. To what extent is it political and what of the whole apparent lack of global collaboration in sharing what vaccines are available. It is it is really interesting that even though uh, the WHO have given the go-ahead, the thumbs up to AstraZeneca, there has still been awareness, even in sort of relative, well, kind of on the whole countries that tend to behave more sensibly than the UK, like Germany. My friend uh, John Campen has written quite a good book, or no, very good book, Casey's listening, very good book, on why Germany does things better. It's been slightly overtaken by events because of the its reaction to the vaccine. It's been wrongly caught up in this whole Brexit argument because Britain commissioned its vaccines while still in effect in the EU because it was commissioned during the year we were in transition. Um, but they have so far mucked it up and the response to condemn the AstraZeneca one was part of the kind of panic-stricken hysteria that politics and the vaccine have tended to create. Um, in terms of vaccine nationalism, I, I might be wrong about this, but I suspect in the end 
governments will recognize we're only out of this when the entire globe is out of this. So I suspect that while there has been vaccine nationalism and kind of vaccine jingoism, uh, it's not going to last much longer. But I might be wrong about that, Heather. Let's see. But there's no point in us vaccinating whilst Europe struggles or third world countries don't get hold of it uh, for various reasons or are wary of the AstraZeneca one for various reasons. That, that, that means this thing will continue to spread and disrupt and cause chaos. And that's without contemplating the impact of these variants, which I know behind the scenes here, causing considerable concern and explain the partial caution uh, that's informed the the timetable exit in England anyway uh, in relation to the lockdown. Kenny Brown uh, comes from uh, Scotland to say uh, that uh, more greetings from Edinburgh. Hello, thank you Kenny. Do you run in the meadows or up Arthur's seat like other Edinburgh correspondents or some just drink whiskey and listen to the podcast? I hope you do all three actually. Actually he, he enjoys the beaches of East Lothian um so yeah lucky you now regardless of the outcome of salmon's answers at holyrood on friday it struck this is kenny speaking it struck me that despite the criticisms laid by many commentators the committee managed to uh, give him three hours of time uh to give his account of events sturgeon will be next to give her account it was political theater occasionally partisan but nevertheless vital in examining what happened there's much talk of the damage that can be done to the independence movement but equally could it be a pivotal moment where the parliament is shown to be an adult place where politicians are held to account see i was interested in this email because a lot of people are writing that what has happened shows scotland to be a banana republic that's what andrew neil argued overexcitedly in uh, the daily mail the other day um, but actually, I think Kenny has got a point that we are beginning, a picture is emerging of what happened from the perspective of both Salmond and Sturgeon. And although there might have been attempts to cover up some of Salmond's evidence, etc., um, he has had the space to put his case very effectively. He was questioned about his version of events by the committee. Um, I'm recording this before Nicola Sturgeon appears on Wednesday, but she will have now to be challenged, I assume, about her version of events. And I want to reflect on this in much more detail when we've heard her side too. I can imagine uh, what her side is, and I think I'm going to be right about it. It's And it's going to be complex, and I can imagine the anguish she went through when torn between... Uh, the discussions she had with her old mentor figure and the person she had worked with so closely and some of her colleagues, female colleagues, um, who were making these allegations. Anyway, let's wait and see. But I think it is wrong to portray what has happened as an example of a kind of banana republic when we are getting two of the big figures um, in Scottish politics, the two biggest figures um, being challenged so uh, closely in uh, the committee arena. Now, some people qu 
criticise the quality of the committee's questioning and so on. Well, some of them are partisan and will have, they want to give Nicola Sturgeon a soft time, but others won't. So let's, let's see. But I think it's an interesting point and it is a big test for the Scottish institutions, which are still relatively new. It's only a product of that 97 New Labour government. It wasn't that long ago. Um, anyway, Cathy Mayus, uh, a regular correspondent, uh, writes in about a range of points. Um, anyway, she one of them is about Scotland. I mentioned the much higher quality of debate between Sturgeon and Davidson as compared to the Johnson Starmer weekly bouts. This is an interesting point. Uh, the fame now famous, much broadcast and repeated exchanges. Uh, uh, between Nicholas Sturgeon and Ruth Davidson about all of this um, compared to the rather kind of lacklustre stuff we're getting from Johnson and Starmer. Uh, she points out, Cathy, Sturgeon and Davidson have as much skin in the, the, the game but express it in a far more intelligent and relevant exchange. Apart from the toings and froings over the Salmond inquiry, I thought Sturgeon's attack on Davison for her upcoming retreat to the unelected House of Lords was interesting, both in terms of the debate about democracy, but also in terms of what happens with Scottish independence. Um, it is why it is is I, I'm not quite sure, but one of the factors in the rise of independence. I know many of you listening in Scotland will tell me rightly that it's by no means the only one, of course not, has been A, the quality of leadership. Whatever happens to Sturgeon as a result of the fallout uh, between the two of them, uh, Salmon and Sturgeon have been impressive leaders and the other parties, with the partial exception of Davidson, uh, have lacked strong leaders. That might be about to change with Scottish Labour. We will wait and see. Why? Why has it emerged uh, uh, within the SNP and not the other parties? It's interesting. And why at the moment has uh, that Westminster Parliament endured a series of leaders unable really to rise to impressive debate? Uh, the Corbyn, Theresa May exchanges were dire at Prime Minister's questions. And uh, Starmer, who had a good start against Johnson, has now, I think, failed to move on from that and develop his repertoire, uh, which needs wit and quick thinking. And, and, and Johnson is hesitant, so obviously evasive. Um, it is pretty pathetic. I mean, I quite often now don't bother watching the Westminster PMQs. But why that is, is interesting. And I'm going to reflect more on the situation uh, in Scotland and the, 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 relation, the importance of political relationships and the significance of feuds um, in a future uh, podcast. Uh, time for just a couple more. Um, uh, yeah, I really wanted to talk about this. It's, it's Den, uh, Den Cartledge writes, did I see the excellent Charles Kennedy documentary that was recently broadcast on BBC Alba? I wonder, this is Den speaking, if you ever met Kennedy, and if so, what I thought of him. Uh, it's another of one of those counterfactual scenarios, but I wonder what would have happened if Kennedy had managed to cling on to the Lib Dem leadership until the 2010 election. Think about it. No Clegmania, no Rose Garden love-in, you know, the love-in with Cameron 
and Clegg, and maybe even a slightly less destructive parliament. Yeah, it's, I did watch it, and I recommend uh, to all of you to have a look at it. It'll be on the iPlayer. It was done by BBC Alba, so some of it's in um, Gaelic and subtitle, uh, or vice versa. Um, in English and subtitled but um, it, it was a, a reminder of what a decent guy he was and I, I did know him quite well I kind of had dinner with him a few times and had conversations with him regularly through the years and he he was a, a extremely nice guy and uh, one of those unusual political figures who makes contact with the electorate uh, he didn't leave behind a great innovative range of ideas and policies um, but he had a capacity to connect with the electorate uh, in, in a way that was really interesting to watch and I, I always try to work out what it was and I couldn't work out the quality that uh, provided this connection between voters and and him but it was there. Uh, he was also a social democrat and an absolutely rooted social democrat um so very bravely uh challenged the cleggite wing of the lib dems that went into that coalition he made clear he didn't support it um and he was also brave though torn i think and tormented uh, in the early stages when he opposed the war in Iraq and spoke to the big anti-war uh, demo uh, a short time before that the war uh, in Iraq. Um, I can't, I, he was getting conflicting advice. I think at that point Paddy Ashdown told him not to oppose and others were doubtful. And But he went for it and it was brave and it took a lot out of him, I think. Um, and the drink element is part of his enigma he was an enigmatic figure uh, because clearly it killed him uh, clearly it ended his leadership prematurely in some respects clearly there was a big cover-up of it but the times i spoke to him interviewed him many times um i i saw no evidence of it um, it was clearly there and clearly didn't appear in public um when he was knocking back the booze and they had to cancel public engagements at times um but it was it was desperately sad um anyway you should watch it the scenery itself is enough to watch it it was god it was stunning scenery where he lived um it was also very sad that he lost his seat in the 2015 election i'd forgotten died very soon afterwards and it was an election where he received a huge amount of abuse and i think he would have found that very painful he was not someone who was like that himself he loved political debate i forgot how good he was he won all kinds of trophies at university um but he never went in for that kind of personal abuse uh but wholly different from clegg um who uh, there was no way kennedy would have gone into that coalition and accepted those economic policies that clegg did relatively contentedly um that they were the Lib Dems need to sort out where they stand ideologically because Clegg and indeed David Steele, sorry, uh, Kennedy and David Steele come from that sort of left of centre wing 
um, it's why Cable, Vince Cable, looks so miserable in that cabinet. He describes himself as a left of centre figure. Um, but there were others, including Clegg at the beginning at least, who thought that the kind of ideological fusion between Cameron and Osborne and him uh, absolutely fitted with Lib Dem values. So who was right? Anyway, that's a big one for another another day. Uh, and finally, uh, Dan China writes um, that he listens to the podcast Walking by the Sea in East Sussex. Uh, he says there are no turtles and little sun, because we heard about um, uh, a, a listener in Australia kind of watching with sun and turtles and all kinds of things. Um, but lots of greys and gulls, which sounds fine. Anyway, uh, Dan's been through a lot recently, um, which I won't go through, but, um, you know, he's he, he's he's been through a terrible time and uh, gets consolation listening to things like podcasts. And he mentions something again, which is one of my favourite themes that... Um, uh, there are too many, um, the, the podcasts are a new and significant form of communication, which challenges the prevailing convention of one minute sound bites. He says the BBC's Any Answers format, in which the public competes to uncritically parrot Twitter or simplistic media headlines, illustrates the critical failure of the media to adequately inform and educate us. Um, and he says, I do hope that podcasting is more than a means to combat the boredom of ironing and jogging, and that it signals a better model of communication in which time is taken to explore ideas rather than uncritically repeating slogans. Perhaps that's my question. Is it? Yeah, uh, well, I think it is. I think it is more. It's great that people are doing their ironing or walking by the sea or running whilst listening to these podcasts. But I think it is... Uh, challenging the format of the kind of convoluted, wholly predicted two-minute row uh, on any answers or all the various equivalents of that across BBC outlets and other broadcasting outlets. And I just, I don't know what, I just bump into people now who listen to podcasts and really don't listen that much to those uh, broadcasting outlets. So I think they are here to stay. Thank God for them, because without them, we would be really lacking the long-form interview, the long-form discussions uh, that used to happen on broadcasting outlets. But as I've said before, all these kind of Oxbridge-educated uh, managers of these broadcasting outlets patronizingly think people aren't capable of that and don't want that, and um, uh, give them stuff that they definitely don't want which is this predictable, contrived, two-minute nonsense. So here's to them, Dan, these podcasts. Um, and thank you very much for writing in. Thank you to all of you for tuning in and for writing in. I'll put the email out again. Actually, I'll do it now. Why not? I'll give you the email while I'm sitting here uh, so you can make a note of it. Uh, it's steverick1414 at icloud.com. Don't forget to book your tickets for King's Place, March the 17th, then put it in your diary and your diary will look so action-packed you will not need to go running or anything else. You can just sit down and have a whiskey. And I'll see you all next week. It's going to be a big week, this one. Lots going on. So we've got to meet together soon to make sense of it all. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot.